friendly to our good King Richard. I love no man better. Why, that's beats Sir Abbott, you've saved half your money. Give me but 30 marks for the poor and the rest you may keep and welcome. But I can go free. Any friend of Richard's is free of this forest. Would you honor us by sharing meat with us? Gladly. Then come. Welcome back to the movie shelf. This is Sana. This is Eric. And today we are talking about The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938. Yeah, this should be fun because this is uh, just pretty much a universally beloved movie. It is exciting, it's fun, uh, it has romance, it has the swashbuckling hero. Um, yeah, this is, this is a movie we're excited about because it's just one that you can just watch and be endlessly entertained by the standout thing to me i mean there's so many things great cast great music but just um the the technicolor is among the most vibrant i can think of yeah and it's it's early technicolor because this movie came out in 1938 and that was a great thing because every technicolor picture has that special look and uh it's also a process that doesn't fade like later color processes. Like, um, I think sometimes when you see movies from the seventies, they look more dated today than pictures from the thirties and forties in Technicolor. Yeah. I, I think that they say that this is like archival grade process, um, because it's so stable and for this picture, they really utilize that, um, with the, um, all the bright costumes and they even painted the grass green to to make it look even more vibrant they did um so it's a you know feast for the eyes among everything else the, the colors are like out of a medieval painting So Warner Brothers basically decided that they wanted to get out of just doing their typical, like they were known at the time for doing like Busby Berkeley musicals and crime movies. Like James Cagney was one of their big stars and he was in all those crime movies and they were good at those. But they wanted to do something else and branch out and be more in the like spectacle game. Because that the swashbucklers from the silent era were kind of having a comeback. And I actually just learned this recently, and I was amazed I'd never heard it. But James Cagney was going to be the star in this movie. He was going to be Robin Hood. I would have liked to have seen that because I pretty much like James Cagney in every single thing I've seen him in. He's just got such charisma. Uh, And he, like Flynn, has got that spunk, you know, that's good for a swashbuckler. But um, he was a little difficult to work with at the time. And... Uh, basically decided that he wanted to walk away from his contract, and so he ended up um, not being in the picture anymore, and they had to scramble to find a star. And Errol Flynn had uh, had pretty amazing success with Captain Blood in 1935, and that was another swashbuckler. And uh, so they decided to go with him, because he kind of had already established himself that way and he had starred with Olivia de Havilland in that movie too so they kind of had their two stars already set up and great chemistry yep so. great chemistry 
Um, they, they kind of thought Captain Blood was such a big success. We can put a lot more into this production. And that I think about that point is when they decided to make a Technicolor, which added, you know, exponentially to the cost. <laughs> um, so worth it, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's remembered a lot more than Captain Blood now. So and that's probably for the Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they had they had Will- William Keeley who was going to direct first and they went to location shoot um, in uh, Chico woods. I think is what they're called uh, North of Los Angeles. And they were going to have William Keeley do everything. But once he started sending back the dailies with his location shooting, they didn't really, they weren't excited about it because he, they kind of realized he wasn't very good with action and they wanted this to be kind of intense and an action-focused movie, so they actually brought in Michael Curtiz, who, again, had been on Captain Blood. Mm-hmm. And so, basically, they just were like, we want to make this more and more like Captain Blood. And he directed the whole rest of the movie, except for the um, the, lo- the on-location shots. And I think he even went back and embellished some of those, too. Uh, but he brought a lot more um, dynamism to the movie, because yeah. he's really good with like motion photography. Mm-hmm tighter pace and mm-hmm. um, working with big crowds and very skilled at that. And it wasn't so fun for Errol Flynn though, because they had had some, a difficult relationship. I mean, he had previous to this directed Errol Flynn, I think twice charge of the light brigade and um, captain blood. Yeah. And twice. And he directed him after this movie, too. But um, I guess Errol Flynn had gotten on well with Keeley And Michael Curtiz, I mean, it's funny. The special features on the Warner Brothers DVD that we have of the adventures of Robin Hood said, well, you know, Michael Curtiz was kind of hard on Errol Flynn. And he didn't like the actors taking lunch breaks. And, you know, he just had a harsher style. But then Eric and I learned, like, when we were just doing more research beyond just the DVD, that he had a big problem with him on um, Charge of the Light Brigade because, I guess, Michael Curtiz, when there was a scene where a bunch of horses were charging, he used tripwire and um, 25 of the horses were injured or killed, and the ones that were injured had to be killed. And I guess Errol Flynn was an avid horseman, and he apparently physically attacked um, Curtiz after that because Curtiz just didn't seem to care at all. And then, well, that's terrible, isn't it? Yeah. Did you say that? Didn't you say there was 125 horses used that he tripped? Yeah. And 25 of them died. were injured or, or died because of their injuries. Exactly. That's oh, it's terrible. And it's funny that they didn't mention that on the Warner Brothers yeah. disc that we have. And it's almost like a Disney Song of the South situation where they probably <laughs> like try to hide that. Yeah, maybe because apparently Warner Brothers never released that movie again, and then they sold the rights to. Um, different company i think and um but yeah and then the other factor which this is kind of a weird one because it's somewhat in dispute but apparently errol flynn's wife can't remember her name i think it was lily something but was um, michael curtiz's ex-wife 
And some <laughs> modern sources say, yeah, they were married before Curtis came to Hollywood. And some sources say not. But it was just very strange to me. I think we first heard about it on, like, one of the TCM um, introductions about Adventures of Robin Hood. And it was just like, what? Well, that would explain a lot more the animosity than just, oh, you know, he didn't like him taking lunch breaks. The TCM thing that you referred to, it had Errol Flynn's daughter oh, yeah. on there. And <laughs> she's, she said that she didn't know that. Yeah. for the longest time and and she found it out when she was just like reading something and she never heard it <laughs> from her father's mouth yeah if very strange if true yeah but yeah you can see there's a lot of reasons that they didn't like each other but yes. they made several Great. amazing films mm-hmm. and de Havilland um didn't mind Curtiz as much but the thing about Curtiz is that he's He's notorious for being really hard on actors, and actors in general did not like to work with him, and in fact, he got kind of a bad re- reputation because of that. Um, he was a workhorse, and he didn't, he didn't like that actors wanted to take a full lunch hour, and he would get angry at them if they did, especially Flynn, because he didn't like Flynn. <laughs> uh, and so de Havilland later recollected many of those things but she um said something along the lines of like later on in her life you know hindsight's 2020 and she said something like well it worked yeah she saw the movie and she was very impressed and like wow we actually did a good job yeah that was kind of a cool story she this was like later decades later i think that she saw the film um at some screening. I think she was in a, another country, too. France, I think. Yeah, and uh, she was just like, oh my gosh, that movie's really good. And so she was going to write to Errol about it, and she never did, because she thought maybe she was being overly sentimental or something. And then um, Flynn passed away, and she always she said she always regretted that she was never able to, um, to like let him know that that movie that they'd made together was amazing. Um, that is sad and I guess just the lesson in that don't be afraid to tell people something even if it is I mean what's the worst that can happen if it's like oh wow they're overly sentimental it's like okay well they're nice and they're thinking about me yeah so you know don't don't worry so much about that do the good deed today while everyone's still alive and well yeah yeah, and she she said that they didn't even know that it that they were making something that would be so great at yeah. the time, and I I think that's funny too. It was like the the Star Wars of its day. Everyone oh, thought yeah, it was really definitely. bizarre, but then when they hear that great score with the music, they're just kind of or with the, with the movie, they're just swept away. Mm-hmm. But there, like I said in the beginning, there are just a lot of different factors to. Um, discuss with this movie different facets you can examine it from and we actually watched it twice and the second time it's like we're glad we watched it again because you kind of get swept along and everything but there's a lot to the movie Um, starting with the actors we've already talked about Errol Flynn who Curtis called Earl Flint and (laughs) Olivia de Havilland, who just 
recently passed away. Um, but there were other greats like Razzle, or <laughs> Basil Rothbone, Claude <laughs> Rains. Um, oh, Claude Rains, so good. And some others that we admire, Eugene Paulette, Alan Hale Sr. Mm-hmm. Um, those are pretty much the main ones for Alan, me. Alan Hale was Little John, and he was also Little John in the Douglas Fairbanks silent version. He didn't look that much younger, I guess, makeup, or he yeah. just has one of those faces, doesn't really age. Yep. And then in the 50s, he played it again in a different Robin Hood-type movie. His little John. Yep. He was good for the role, so. Yeah. yeah. And the funny thing that we noticed with this movie is that um, recently the Criterion Channel had a Gary Cooper, like, playlist, I guess, of um, different Gary Cooper films. And one of them was this, I guess, big budget, unfortunately, um samuel goldwyn yeah sam goldwyn production of the adventures of marco Marco polo Polo. and even the title is so similar it came out in the same year 1938 it was not technicolor it was black and white but this i love that we saw this because it really gives you context has a lot of the same actors. It does. Basil Rathbone is in it. Yeah, he plays the the main villain. Yeah, he's Ahmed, the main villain. And also Alan Hale's in it. He's like a warlord and also um smaller role. But there is, uh, let's see, what is his name? Um, English actor Harry Cording who plays King Richard's would-be assassin, he is also in that movie. And so I was recognizing all of these actors from um, The Adventures of Marco Polo. But imagine, okay, so you have the great explorer Marco Polo with Gary Cooper's accent, which does not change in any movie that he's in. (laughs) And so he just sounds very... Humble Midwestern. Yeah. Being this great international explorer. It didn't work. He's not good in it. The movie's just bad, actually. And um, it's just so cheesy, though. Like, yeah. So, one of the main things with Marco Polo is his dad sends him with a bag and says, Collect, you know, some of the best treasures you find. And, like, he goes to some peasant's house and by the way no one is speaking any other language everyone even though he's going all the way to china everyone speaks the same language (laughs) um they're eating noodles together and um eric and i kind of quote this a lot because it's so cheesy but he he looks at the plate of spaghetti and he says what's this snakes (laughs) (laughs) And, oh, and that's the moment Marco Polo discovered spaghetti. And brings it back with him. And they're like, no, we call it spaghetti. And he oh, takes it with so his cheesy. bag. And he discovers fireworks and thinks, this could be a weapon. And <laughs> coal or rocks that burn. And yeah. It's just very silly. It's so silly. Um, so anyway, the, the point being, uh, it, it's compare. apparently hard to make a good adventure film. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you can have some of the elements in and, place and just yeah. miss the mark. And they just nailed it with Robin Hood. So kudos mm-hmm. to Hal Wallace and all of his team, Michael Curtis and everybody else, because they, well, yeah, not easy to do, but they nailed it. So is there anything specific you want to discuss with any of the acting? I love, like I mentioned, the Errol Flynn has so much charm and cheer as he's, um, you know, fighting injustice. He has great chemistry with Olivia de Havilland. Yeah, they're great together. And Olivia de Havilland never looked more beautiful, I don't think, than she does in this movie. I don't think so either. And it's... Especially the scene where you can actually see her hair. It's funny, there is a later scene in a tavern where her outfit looks a little bit like an alien. Because it's like (laughs) metallic. It's like a silver color. Her head is covered in most of the scenes, but it just looks a little strange in that one. Yeah, isn't that interesting that uh, that they do cover her hair for most of the movie, uh, which is like true to how it actually would have been at the time? And yet they they did that despite the fact that most of the time, like, they want to show off the actress's hair. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I kind of thought that was a bold decision. Yeah, but she has such a sweet face and it works. Yeah, it definitely works. Um, she also did her own research into costumes, too. And I, I remember reading that the... Um, had suggestions and stuff. The, yeah, the costume designer really liked working with her because she would come in with suggestions and she was, like, excited about it. Yeah, um, she, I mean, she was a thinking actress, that's for sure. She mm-hmm. was very intelligent, had a lot of opinions and preferences, and, I mean, there's a reason she is so beloved. Um, Basil Rothbone's great. I haven't seen him in very much. I need to see Shakespeare someday. And um, it's, it's funny, I read that he, when he was in the Army during World War One. He um, won the fencing tournament or won best fencer in the army like twice. But, um, and, and it's funny, number twice, because that was the only number of times out of all of the movies he was in where he had to fence and he was an expert fencer, but he lost every time but two times in all of his filmed roles. <laughs> and yeah, he was only usually the only one on set who was really good at it naturally yeah, yeah. yeah. uh errol flynn was like really good at doing the fencing on the set too but he was just naturally athletic and he was it a quick came, study yeah, it was a quick study yep yeah and the 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 sword play in the movie is amazing mm-hmm. um they had a, a sword a sword specialist come in and do all the choreography for the sword fights and it it it's holds exciting. up so well mm-hmm. yeah of course, Claude Rains is amazing, wonderful. It's so funny, though, his um, wig. I, I I guess it's said that Errol Flynn hated the first wig he was given, and he had more preferences, so a, a new wig was made, and it looks good. I think Prince John's wig does not look very good, but, Eric, you think it seems... It looks authentic to me. Yeah. But it doesn't look very good. Like, it, it's... That's, again, silly. it's almost a bold decision because uh, they made it look authentic even though it looks silly now instead of just making it anachronistic mm-hmm. like most movies would do. And um, I, other actor I wanted to mention, Eugene Paulette. Um, 
I I really he plays Friar Tuck. Yes, he plays Friar Tuck, and it's funny to me. His outfit in this reminds me of one of the demons in um, Sleeping Beauty, the little like pig-looking one that's like, <laughs> we searched every cradle when she's like sixteen years old. <laughs> the little henchman to Mal- Maleficent. <laughs> Um, because he's got like the brown robes and the metal helmet, but um, the roles I've seen Eugene Pallet in that I like the best are in um, My Man Godfrey when he plays the like the father that's just sick of his family's nonsense. And then I also <laughs> like him in Heaven Can Wait when he is supposed to be married to I don't know the actress's name but she's the uh like how housekeeper helper in or the cook in um meet me in St. Louis um so she's stern he's stern they're not on speaking terms and they're talking to each other through their butler talking about like uh I want to read the paper and would you inform Mrs. So-and-so that, you know, I need to read the comics, and I wonder what happened in the comics, and they're just, it's really comical, and I think probably one of my favorite parts of that movie. Yeah, that's good stuff. But yeah, he's in it, just as one of the side characters. He's really funny, too. Yeah. And, um, last one I probably want to talk about, um, the Sheriff of Nottingham. Right. Melville Cooper, I believe. Yeah, um, he was he was a comedic actor. He's funny in this one. Yeah, and so they use. I, I know sometimes, um, the sheriff of Nottingham is like the main villain, the menacing one. But in this one, they kind of made him silly and just silly. Yeah, cowardly. Like he he never wanted to do anything himself. He's always just <laughs> like, oh well, you know. I would. If but... only I had a clear shot at him. And... Oh, it's so funny. Yeah, and so the main villain is Basil Rathbone as Sir Guy of Gisborne. Yes, the funny thing to me about Sir Guy in this is um, he he contrasts with uh, Robin Hood of Luxley because uh, Robin Hood is always very confident, sure of himself, cheery, and Sir Guy is like seems a lot more reserved he's he's evil for sure but he lacks a certain confidence and always seems eager to prove himself going toe-to-toe with robin hood and he's always upset when he can't because like their first fight um when when the sword play breaks out um errol flynn basically just immediately knocks him over and escapes so he doesn't really get to take out his rage against robin hood um, he's just always like being humiliated by him and then at the end when they do get to fight you know he finally gets it open up and he's of course defeated but it's just interesting to me that he's not portrayed as like an equal in like oh I'm potently dangerous um, it's like I don't know he's he's always having he's always being humiliated by Robin Hood yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, when they finally um, cross swords with one another, he's you know he he fends for himself pretty well. Mm-hmm. But he just hasn't it, gotten the chance so far. Yeah, always outnumbered or 
Uh huh. Remember the first scene where we see Robin Hood and, and him together in yeah. the woods, and Robin Hood <laughs> basically just aims an arrow at him. Yeah. And I always find it interesting that he doesn't even try to retaliate, even though he has all of his men with him on horseback. Yes. And all and Robin Hood has a few men too, but all he does is just point an arrow, and they're like, "All right, let's go," and they just they just go off. Yep. The commentary uh, mentioned that. Robin Hood has three main entrances in the movie, or Errol Flynn, really, because they were pushing his stardom so much that they gave him, like, three big first moments. And the first was that one with, um, with Sir Guy of Gisborne. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is probably my favorite scene of the movie, a lot of people's favorite, when he bursts into the, uh, the feast that Prince John is giving um, with the deer on his back. And the third... <laughs> is um, later when the whole team of everybody goes into Sherwood Forest and then he and then and then their team and then uh, the merry men pop out from the trees and then last of all he swings on with his yeah, he, vine and he swings onto a rock a- yeah big entrance <laughs> great um you you know what i like about him bursting into the uh banquet hall is that when when he's at the doors with the with the deer on his shoulders he's not just waiting there standing while the doors open like you'd expect the doors open and he's just like swinging the deer around just fighting with the guards yeah he knocks out both guards with the deer's antlers (laughs) it's just funny to open the door and see that Yep. Man, that's a great scene. What else can we say about that scene? Well, what we can say is I think it's a great example of Prince John, Prince John is really trying to lay on the charm and say, Robin Hood, I like you, and just kind of praise him for his impudence and, um, you know, all that stuff. And uh, Robin Hood is not falling for it. He's like, you know, I'll sit down, but, you know, you start broaching the subject of how you're taking more power while uh, King Richard's away. I'm going to start, you know, insulting you and <laughs> tell you I'm not going to be for you. And it's it's funny because all of the noblemen while King Richard's away, like, they have to decide since his brother is starting to volley for power. It's like, okay, do I... Uh, ally myself give my allegiance and fealty to prince john who might come out on top since king richard has been captured or do i stay loyal to the true king you know if if this goes wrong i'm going to probably be killed or exiled well, confound it what are you all gobbling at is it so strange that i decide to rule when my brother is a prisoner who's to say i shouldn't you sir mortimer of leeds not i your highness you, Sir Boran? Nor I, Your Highness. You, Sir Ralph of Durham? My sword is yours, Your Highness. And what about our young Saxon cockerel here? What's the matter? Have you no stomach for honest meat? For honest meat, yes. But I've no stomach for traitors. You call me traitor? You? Yes. And every man here who offers you allegiance. And so when when Prince John is trying to charm Errol, Fr- Errol Flynn, he is good about resisting that charm. And I think that that's a theme 
that you don't see enough in you know modern morality uh, plays, modern film. It's just like the dangers of charm and how you can be giving away your, um, I guess, moral position if you just go along to get along. Mm-hmm. And it would have been hard to be nobility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if they're not going with the leadership, then they could lose all of their stuff. And that's exactly what happens to Robin. Um, but he's such a great character because he's he's just like he does the right thing cheerfully mm-hmm. instead of okay because you know in the in the course of the movie he loses all of his titles and his property and um instead of just being sour about it he's he i mean he never even talks about it it doesn't even register no he, he his highest loyalty is to the people of sherwood who are being not sherwood the the saxons who are being oppressed right. and king richard um yeah and so he thinks of the the poor saxons um before himself and it's it's almost like a christ-like figure in that way he's uh, a great character and i think that the idea of a character being cheerfully um, doing good uh, is kind of the heart of the swashbuckler too, because Douglas appealing. Fairbanks was the same way. Yeah, I mean, it, I think my favorite moments of the film are when he is cheerfully standing up to, I don't know, I like I said earlier, injustices to the powerful forces that are um, doing wrong. And he's just like, you know, defying them. Yeah. So that's what makes that, that moment when he comes in with, uh, with Prince John's deer that he's not supposed to kill under penalty of death. Um, so he comes in and with it over his shoulders and just stands there right in front of Prince John and just throws it down on the table in front of him. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, just a little aside about that is, uh, also I learned that in an earlier draft of this movie, um, they weren't going to have anything about him hunting deer or anything. Um, instead it was going to be like a little more serious, this part. And he was going to come in with a dead Saxon peasant that they had killed, like the corpse of a Saxon over his shoulders. Yeah. That they had killed, that his men had killed, uh, Prince John's men that is, and, and throw that on the table and that wow, that would have been dramatic, but that scene would not have the the charm or the punch that the it has. Levity. Yeah, that it has now. Yeah, you can't really have charming banter over a dead person. Yeah, and that's what they said. All of the banter that happens between them after he throws the deer down, none of that would have been there or could have been there. No, that would have been like the throwdown instead of it leading up to Prince John's treason, um, which is how it was. Um, he just announces he was going to be taking on more responsibility that he wasn't really authorized to take on. But um, one of the things I think is really interesting after this scene is, and I didn't notice it until the most recent viewing, but the aftermath of the um, first sword fight amongst everyone was, you know, a couple guards, a couple of Prince John's men were killed and, um, when when Prince John is talking with Sir Guy about, you know, we've got to get Robin Hood, blah, blah, blah. As the um, camera is panning over to them discussing that, you see in the background two, 
I think two of the men who had been killed just kind of laid out in the background and a priest is like reading over them or speaking over them anyway. And it's like, oh, that kind of adds a little, it's not just bad guys are killed and they just disappear. And Yeah, I'm so glad that we watched it that second time before mm-hmm. we recorded because I had never noticed that. And that's pretty amazing. I mean, that adds a little bit of complexity, mm-hmm. seeing the aftermath of the people that Robin actually kills. Um, it's That's a topic that comes up a lot in like action movies today, like superhero movies, is the morality of the good guy killing people. I think there's an Avengers N- movie that touched on that too. Yeah, but Bat- Batman, like famously, he doesn't like to kill people. Um and so it's interesting to see our hero. He's just like right from right off the bat, he's killing people, mm-hmm. but it's like, you know, more yeah. complicated. But it's it, it it's makes it interesting. Yeah, but it's acknowledged. It doesn't slow down the story. Nope. It's just there, so you you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but something also interesting about the people being killed. There are a lot of people being shot with arrows since Robin is a master archer and the stuntmen who agreed to be shot with arrows um they would wear like padding steel armor and then a layer of balsa wood and then their clothes and so um the howard hill who is like the the real master archer who is helping them with this film he would be the one to shoot the arrows and for each arrow that someone agreed to take, they'd get paid, I think, $125. And so, you know, they'd agree to do it. But the impact was still a lot, so they'd still, like, have a realistic reaction. Isn't that crazy? They just really shot the people. With real arrows? <laughs> With real arrows. Yes. Yeah, just wild. I never would have guessed that because you hear of them using, like, reverse, like, um, reversing the film. With So, wire. like, they'll have, like, a, they'll start it with a an arrow in the in the chest of the person and then they'll like pull it out with a string and then they'll just reverse the shot so it makes it look like they're getting shot but in this they actually shoot the actors who are wearing steel plates it's crazy mm-hmm. something else we learned with this movie is the meaning of the phrase quarter staff because when um robin hood meets little john they have a little quarter staff man-to-man combat that's a great scene too and the the staffs are so long we're like what on earth why is it quarter and it's because you hold it i think in the middle and then your hand is your other hand is placed a quarter of the way down from the middle so that's that's the position to um fight one another i always wondered (laughs) now we know yeah um, so uh, a part that I'd, I'd like to talk about is um, there's a little – it always it always gets my attention. There's a montage uh, of the Normans under Prince John and under Sir Guy of Gisborne um, just, like, attacking all of the Saxon peasants and making life miserable for them. And there's this one part in that montage that, that it reminds me so much of Gone with the Wind with the use of the – like the sunset and the red mm-hmm. color. Yes. And um, silhouettes. Yeah, there's somebody hanging, right? If I remember correctly, yeah. like being hung. Yes, yes. And it's so dramatic. And it's <laughs> like, I never remember 
the dramatic depths that this movie reaches. Because when I think back on it, it feels like so light fun. Yeah. But there really is more to it. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's a lot to it that you don't really remember upon reflection. And I actually had to take notes, and I'm glad I did because there's no way I could remember everything. <laughs> um, one of the funny things that we noticed is um, there's a banquet scene. And, um, you know, Maid Marian is just not impressed with Robin. She thinks he's a scoundrel and an, an outlaw and doesn't really realize that his cause is just. And he tries to win her over bit by bit. First, you know, they're just having a feast that they pretty much stole from Prince John's men, like um, Sir Guy and the Sheriff of Nottingham, who they've made dress up in these ridiculous outfits. Um, (laughs) But he's, like, trying to get her to eat, and she's like, I'm not hungry. And then he eats this huge leg of mutton, and it's just enormous, and he's starting to eat it. And she just kind of covertly, like, starts nibbling on her um, chicken or whatever she has, whatever fowl that she's eating. And um, then, like, she sees her looking at him and she puts it down, kind of embarrassed because she had already said she wasn't hungry after he was trying to pressure her to eat. And he's laughing. And it's funny because when he first looks at her, his mutton is, like, still just full of meat barely have has taken any meat off and then like when it cuts like to her back to him it's just a bone and he's laughing it's <laughs> like oh i guess in that time he was staring at her he was just chowing down in and, like three seconds in yeah three seconds <laughs> yes yeah. that's a funny little goof and I, I was trying to think, like, maybe he maybe put his piece down oh, and then yeah. picked up one that was more bare, but it didn't really look like it. It looked like he just ate the whole thing in three seconds. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know. I think there's a line that Prince John has in the opening, like, such impudence must support a healthy appetite or something like yeah, that. Yeah, So maybe that's the... Yeah. Uh, on, on the topic of the clothes that he made... Um, Sir Guy and the Sheriff of Nottingham wear when they walked back to Prince John's castle. Uh, It's funny because they use that in the next scene when they are talking to Prince John about what they're going to do next. And it's kind of a scene of exposition, like a necessary one. Um, But they're able to work in the the humiliating clothes uh, in a way that I thought was really clever. Because while they're talking, and I don't even remember so much what they're saying right now, but... They're um, talking about the idea of um, tricking Robin Hood with the archery tournament. That's right. That's where they come up with the archery tournament. Uh, But while they're talking, um, the sheriff of Nottingham keeps taking his hat off and just kind of playing with it because Prince John is like take that ridiculous thing off. So he takes it off. And then as he's talking, he'll put it back on. And then every time he puts it back on, Prince John's like, take off that bonnet. And it's such a funny little thing. They just like, you have to be really good at writing a script to come up with something like that. I think. Yeah. Like to use the previous scene and put a little tiny gag in there in an exposition scene, Mm -hmm. just to make it a little more interesting. That's good stuff. It is funny because it's like, he's, the clothes are so stupid looking but he's just like already kind of taken ownership of them yeah he keeps putting his hat back on yeah yeah it's pretty funny yeah um speaking of costumes 
in the archery tournament scene, Robin Hood goes under disguise because, you know, he wants to compete for the prize, but he doesn't want to be discovered. And the hat and the outfit he wears is actually pretty similar to the um, Disney animated Robin Hood. I mean, minus the stork legs and stork bill that the fox uses. But just the hat and the clothes, it's like, wow, that looks very similar. Well, I think that uh, I think Disney was very inspired by this movie when they made their animated version. Mm-hmm. They had a lot to live up to. So one of the stunts that I was very impressed by, you know, when Robin Hood is caught and he's going to be hung and um, Maid Marian had arranged for his men to help him escape. He jumps onto a horse, like, no-handed, because his hands are tied behind his back. And that's so impressive, and it leads right into another great... Um, yeah, the the one where... So he's, like... He jumps off of the horse and grabs onto, uh, a, like, the rope to draw up the gate. Um, and he climbs up the rope really fast while his horse runs underneath the gate. And then he... <laughs> He is able to close the gate that way and go over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, you know, he, he climbs down the other side. And it's pretty impressive. Probably a callback to the, you know, old Fairbanks. Because, yeah, he has a really stunts. similar stunt in that, in the Fairbanks one. That's true. That's probably one of the stunts that Flynn didn't do himself. And. Flynn liked to claim that he did all of his own stunts. And in fact, he did the vast majority of them, like way more than any other star was doing. Um, but uh, they film historians like Rudy Belmer, who did the commentary on the DVD, um, they're pretty sure he didn't do all of them because they just would not have allowed it. Like the draw bridge, like the, uh, I mean, the, the draw rope uh, one, he would not have done. Um and it, you can tell when you're watching it that it just shows his back. Yeah. Which is a good sign it was probably a stunt double. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but that one and the horse one are like two, I think, of the only ones that he didn't actually do. It's it's really cool. You got to be so impressed with the stuntmen in this movie, especially the, the ones who got injured. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are a lot of like acrobats. Like if you look at the Merry Men, it's like... Dang, there are so many of those guys. No wonder Sir Guy couldn't do anything. They were just vastly outnumbered. Yeah. Yeah, one of the stuntmen broke his ankle. When, um, so, like, when Sir Guy gets his comeuppance at the end, uh, he falls. And um, there was a stuntman that actually did the fall. And, uh, like, what you see on the screen is real. It wasn't a rag doll or anything. Oof. And, and uh, he broke his ankle doing it. And I hope he got, like some kind of good pay for you know i don't know just something maybe something a little above the 125 dollars for being shot with an arrow yeah that'd be nice although tom cruise broke his ankle in the last mission impossible movie so that's still happening today yeah he's he's pretty well paid though but (laughs) he gets a lot yeah that's for sure yes um we would it would be a shame if we did not mention the like scene where Errol or where Robin Hood comes to thank Maid Marian for helping him escape death, and 
it's just a kind of cute but also a little embarrassing scene because she's just gushing with her um, lady-in-waiting, who, who's great also, by the way. I haven't really mentioned her at all. Yeah, but Una O'Connor, who plays Bess, the lady-in-waiting. She's funny. Yeah, she's, got, she's really good. She's got spunk. But... And she has a little romance going on with... Um, uh, with who who was it? Um, much. Much. That's it. Yeah. 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 I couldn't remember his name for a minute. Yep. Um, one of the first characters we're introduced to in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's never at a sweetheart. And, <laughs> and she's had the bands on five times. And she was just tickled that he had never been with a lady. And so, yeah, they, they have a little cute relationship. But... You know, Maid Marian and her are talking about what it's like to be in love. And embarrassingly, Robin Hood was there hearing all of it. And he just kind of bursts in and she's just really embarrassed. And <laughs> like, oh, I wasn't, uh, that was just a game. And I don't love you. <laughs> it's like, all right. Then. <laughs> yeah. But then she has to admit that she really does. And it's it's really good chemistry and sweet. They're really good together. Which is good because they run a lot of movies together. Yeah, and that's a scene where um, Corn Gold's score plays a big part. Yeah, it, it sort of t- gives you the subtext of a very romantic moment um, between them. And right after that scene, we have an example of excellent pacing because we just need a, a change in the story, and we see King Richard in disguise mm-hmm. with his men. Uh, and then, yeah, so that's the point where. King Richard comes back, and um, I am always amazed by the pacing of this movie because when he comes into the story, it's exactly when it needs to happen, and you feel just like immensely satisfied like, when he ooh, when he finally takes off his his robe and reveals himself as the king to Robin Hood and his merry men. But the king, where is he? I don't know, master. Man, Richard must be found. He must be found and brought here for safety. Little John, take a party and scour the countryside. Right up into the town. Will, search every inn and cottage. Don't rest any of you day or night until he's found. Understand? You don't need to search for Richard, Robin. He's in good hands. The best in England. What do you mean? Where is he? Here. It's just like, oh, this is it. It's King Richard. Oh. Like, I don't know. The movie makes you feel like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's a really great part. Mm-hmm. And it's like all the, all the uh, men of Sherwood Forest are just, you know, kneeling and giving their allegiance. It's like, oh, the king has returned. Yep. So satisfying. And then, of course, you know, from there, the movie just... Go, it goes in, it goes into its uh, its big climax, the amazing uh, fight choreography that yeah, it just feels like a climax. Everything feels right. Mm-hmm. Um, they I, I did learn they sped up the film a little mm. bit for the fight scenes and that's done really well because yeah, you like just... you could you could speed it up too much and it would look silly. 
but they sped it up just a little bit to and, add some excitement. Yeah. And yeah, and that again, we said this earlier, but that's why Curtis was brought in because he was much better at filming action and movement. It's a it's a great fight. Like I said, it's when Sir Guy finally gets to, you know, do what he's wanted to do all this time and it's it's pretty rewarding and entertaining to watch. Yeah. And that so the the way that it it ends reminds me a lot of uh the throne room scene at the end of Star Wars. Oh yeah. Uh, basically a lot of this movie reminds me of Star Wars cuz really Star Wars was trying to bring back this kind of movie with the romance and the you know the the thrills and and uh, even the princess who's ducking around yeah. to be a spy and try to help the Mm-hmm. the tr- true king there was a part that reminded you of her on the death star yeah there was i i, I it was the part where uh where bess was like sneaking around mm-hmm. um and yeah that did i was like this feels so much like the death star <laughs> sequence in star wars it, it, yeah you can just tell that george lucas was probably watching this movie but, but yeah and that's how it wraps up with with you know the the guy gets the girl, and it's just everything is a happy ending. And, yeah, it's just one of those super satisfying movies from start to finish. And it's, I mean, basically perfect. There's I, I there's really nothing I would change about it. No, me either. Let's talk about the awards. And we can we can bring in uh, Korngold at this point. Uh, so Eric Wolfgang Korngold was an Austrian composer who was a wunderkind, who just like really early, kind of like Mozart, uh, got huge at a very early age uh, for his ability to, to compose. And uh, he started doing film scores and had done some uh, for Warner Brothers and for, for Curtis films. And so they wanted him for this one, too. Uh, But he um, originally was excited. But then when he saw the footage they had shot, he was like, this is an action movie. And I don't really do action movies because I'm more interested in like human drama. And so he was going to back out at that point because he's like, I just can't do it. Um, uh, And and so he was going to go back to Austria. But what's happening in the world in the late 1930s in Austria, you know, the Nazis are taking over. So um, he actually sees the movie as his out. And he's like, at that point, he he agrees to do it. And he also gets his family out of Austria because of this. And um, he won an Oscar for the film because this uh, best score was one of the Oscars that this movie got. And he later in his life said that Robin Hood saved his life, which is pretty much true because um, he was Jewish and he was, yeah, he wasn't going to make it out of, out of Nazi. Um, no, his estate had been taken over. Yeah, yeah, it had been. I think it was right around the same time that he was deciding to take on Robin Hood, too. It was taken over and, yeah. Yep. And then, um, and so in addition to the, the Oscar for the best score, it also got an Oscar for Best Art Direction and an Oscar for Best Editing and was nominated for Best Picture but lost to uh, Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You. Um, yeah. 
guess just uh, in closing, I wanted to mention. Um, so I I think I said earlier that we had the we have the streaming version, and we also have the DVD, which had a lot of great special features. We like a lot of the Warner Brothers releases of things because they're pretty generous with their special features. They had a great special about um, the history of Technicolor, which was um, narrated by Angela Lansbury. And it was it was great. Half the movies they talked about I had never heard of because I, I take it they weren't that popular. But, I mean, hey, it was, it was a great special. Um, there are two Looney Tunes cartoons. Um about Robin Hood, one Bugs Bunny one, and one with Daffy Duck and Porky Pig, and they're both funny. Yeah, doesn't the Bugs Bunny one actually include footage from the movie? Yes, at the yeah, end it includes funny. one of um, Errol Flynn's entrances in the Robin Hood movie, so that's kind of fun and surprising. Um, there is a commentary with, I don't know. Rudy Belmer. Rudy Belmer. And then there are just a couple other special features that are random, but I think every single one is good. So um, it's not the best print, the DVD. We don't have the Blu-ray of that. We probably should. If we ever, if, if they ever come out with like a 4K version of this, that would be a great one to get because it's such a beautiful film. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we got this in HD. Um uh, for free and streaming because it was part of that that uh, collection of classic films that you got if you subscribed to Filmstruck. Hmm. I think that's what it was. Well, if we not, I'll it. cut this out. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was. We got it for free that way, and so we watch it in HD streaming. But then we we get the DVD out to watch the special features, and that works. Yep. So, um, but yeah, great film. It's a crowd pleaser. You know when I bought the DVD, it was $5 at Walmart. There you go. And it's a two-disc DVD that's like loaded with extras. Yeah, that was a heck of a deal. If you see if you see a price like that, go ahead and snatch it up. <laughs> yeah, so thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, this is such a fun movie. Um, so this is episode nine of our podcast, and, and next time... Is going to be episode 10, and we wanted to do something uh, a little different for our, our 10th episode. And so we have decided that we're going to do a special episode about all of the Titanic movies mm-hmm. that have been released. It's really random, but uh, we just thought it would be fun because... We've seen a couple. We've seen, yeah, we've seen a few of them already, and we own a couple of them. And Titanic movies are... are just very they're all very different mm-hmm. i thought it would be a, there's even a nazi one <laughs> which we have not seen yet but yep. so look forward to that um and uh yeah we just want to thank you all for listening yeah thank you so much take care uh you can find me uh, on twitter at sauna mcdonough and i'm at con film buff all right well have a good one see ya <laughs>